0: Hello, good morning, Castleton Community Church. It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Um, Today's scripture reading will come to us from the book of Luke. We will be continuing our series. So if you do not have a Bible, we have some in the back. And if you do not own a Bible, feel free to take that as our gift. Again, the scripture reading today is Luke 6, 12 through 16. This is God's word. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when he came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles Simon, who he named Peter, <clears throat> and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas and James, the son of Alphys, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that we are gathered this Lord's day as your people, and Lord, I pray that you would, through your word, do what only you can do. Would you encourage us would you convict us? Would you move us? Would you have your word not return void? Well, Lord, as we continue in this series, would you remind us that, <clears throat> as you say in Second Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed. All of it is profitable. And I pray that today, as we look at this text, that you would help us to see glorious things in your word. We ask all of this, Lord, and that your son will be glorified. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and if he's one of yours, he has a quote about reading that I think is actually also true about reading biographies. In it, Lewis says this, In reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. In reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. And isn't it such a wonder... For those of us who like to read, how we can read the lives of people such as FDR or Margaret Thatcher or even C.S. Lewis himself, and we feel as if when they are triumphing, somehow we're triumphing as well. When they go through heartbreak heartbreak, or they go through loss or they go through betrayal, we feel as if something has fundamentally been done to us, and yet all of this happens in the comfort of our own couch or our favorite Starbucks. If you look at, if you're familiar with the writer, um, Edgar Allan Poe, his great-grandson, Harry Lee Poe, in fact, has written three books about the life of C.S. Lewis, chronicling all the way from his birth, all the way to him growing up in school, and I just wanna read a couple of excerpts from his book. Some of you may or may not know, but J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were best friends. Uh, what we, what, what Poe says is that they would often get together and while Lewis was writing book after book after book after book, J.R.R. Tolkien found himself in the agony of writer's block and he was discouraged and there would be days and months and years while Lewis is producing where Tolkien would be so discouraged and Harry Lee Poe says that often Lewis would encourage him and tell him to continue to write. And praise God that he did, because now we understand who um, Sam and Frodo and Gandalf all are. So perhaps had it not been for Lewis himself, we would know nothing of Frodo and his travail all the way to Mount Doom. Also, a little bit about biology, Lewis and his brother Warney only had one joint in their thumb. Now, I didn't know you had two joints in the thumbs, but apparently with them only having one joint in the thumb, they were unable to throw, to catch, to play baseball, softball, name any sport. So listen to what Harry Lee Post says about Lewis growing up. He says, as a result of his failure on playing on the field, young Lewis was subjected to ridicule and abuse from the other students. We've all been there. At school, listen to this. He was made to feel unworthy to draw breath. So all the students are hanging out, throwing, and Lewis and his brother are sitting on the sidelines saying, I wish I could do that. We could go on and on. We could could look at the way that Lewis wrote the Narnia, or or we could go on and and talk about how Lewis would eventually meet his wife, Joy, and we could could go on. And I think if some of us are honest, we look at our text today and we say, I want to know what the disciples were like. I want to know, what did Doubting Thomas drink in the mornings? What was Peter's morning routine? Or, or, or how about James? Was he president of the debate team? And, and we don't know those things. In fact, some of the disciples that we see in our text, the only time they're mentioned is here in our text and then a couple other places. And so we don't get a biography about who these men were. But what we will discover this morning, church, is that this these men, these 12 ordinary men were given the message of the breathtaking news of the gospel that would change the world. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through Luke and we're going to get to know these disciples and we're going to get to know what their message was. We will see this through three points. They're calling, their lessons, and their message. Again, they're calling, their lessons, and their message. So they're calling. When we look at some of the disciples, we know that from their calling that some of them were fishermen. We know so much as we look at people like Peter and Andrew, James and John, we know that they were fishermen. And if you look at Mark 1:16, this has concluded some people to think that in fact, James and John were wealthy. And why do we say that? Well, because when James and John are called by Jesus, they leave their father with hired servants. So this has made some commentators think that they were in fact wealthy men. If we follow John MacArthur in his book titled 12 Ordinary Men, he believes the rest of the disciples were fishermen. He concludes this because we know at the end of John 21, when Peter says, I'm going to go fishing, the other disciples decide to go with him. And yet, is it not interesting and perplexing that Jesus calls Matthew a tax collector Out of all the people that Jesus could have picked, he picks a tax collector, a tax collector that the Jews of the day looked at him as if they were traitors. Tax collectors would go around to their fellow Jewish men and collect taxes and many times take two, three, four, five times what they needed. Look at what one author says about tax collectors and how they were viewed. He says, tax collectors are opposite of children of the kingdom of God. Tax collectors are people who don't belong to the community. Excommunicated members of the Jewish community are on their level. So one would think, why, what is Jesus doing calling a low-level tax collector amongst fishermen who would have hated him? Now that's not even the worst part. Simon the zealot As we see, if you you do some digging, Simon the Zealot, he was known as as an ultra-nationalist. He loved his Jewish kinsmen so much. The, The Zealots were the most politically motivated group out of all of the Jews. As one author says, the Zealots were convinced that paying tribute to a pagan king was an act of treason against God. He even goes as far as to say that Simon would have most likely wanted to kill Matthew. So what is Jesus doing calling a bunch of fishermen, a tax collector, and a zealot? And yet as we look at all of the differences of this random group of men, what we see is that when they meet Jesus, Jesus changes the type of people that they hang around. We see that when they meet Jesus, it's as if everything that could have divided them just goes into the background. And so we see that the gospel has the power and the ability to bring together unlikely bedfellows. How amazing is it this morning that we have in this room, Democrats, libertarians, Republicans in the household of God united under the fact that Jesus is King. That, that the gospel brings together black, white, Hispanic, African, all different types of ethnicities under the banner of the household of God. Dare I even say that the gospel has the ability to bring together the holy and beloved Purdue University with, I don't even want to say it, those of IU. He does that. The gospel changes us. And yet, isn't it not even more surprising that the, the, the intelligence of the disciples, we see in Acts 4.13, what does it say about Peter and John? It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. It's interesting, right, that Jesus would call these type of men. If you were a young Jewish boy and you, in fact, wanted to, to join a rabbi, what you would have to do is you'd have to go and show that rabbi that you were proficient in the Torah, that you were proficient in the Pentateuch. And yet Jesus doesn't have the disciples come up to them and pass some theological exam. As Jesus says in John 15, 6, remember, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And so what we see here is that Jesus doesn't need big brains. Jesus just needed teachable men. Simple, ordinary men. I wonder how many of us have thought, I'm just a simple mom. I just just work at the library. I just, I I mean, I, I work in a factory or I'm just an accountant or I'm just a businessman. What we see is that God is looking for teachable men and women to use in order to spread his message. And so what do we take from our first point? We see that God calls an unusual group of men together. And that while, they, while everything was working against them in their backgrounds, that God calls them and it changes the types of people that they hang around. And secondly, we see God doesn't call biblical scholars He calls unschooled, ordinary men to spread the good news of the gospel to all people. And so now that we understand their calling, we're now going to move on and we're going to see what were their lessons. What were the things that Jesus needed to teach the disciples as he walked with them? And so in this next section, we're going to have three subheadings. Jesus's identity, everyone's invited in true greatness. These are the three lessons. Jesus's identity, everyone's invited in true greatness. if, if we catch up to speed, Luke 6, Jesus calls his disciples to him, right? He calls them, he names them. And then what do they do from about Luke 6 to about Luke 8, 22? They're ministering. They're going out. They, they are going and following Jesus and, and, and watching him do the things that only he can do. And then in Luke eight twenty two, 22, we, we come to a familiar passage where there's a storm in Jesus and the disciples. And What happens? Jesus tells them after they have been ministering, he says, we're gonna go to a boat and we're gonna go to the other side. Simple enough, this is easy. Except they get in the boat just as normal and they're fishermen, so again, they've done this before. And then what happens? The disciples start to feel raindrops on them and start to see the wind. They go, okay, the the, the wind's kind of, you know, it's, it's picking up a little bit. And then a storm actually comes. And the disciples, it gets so bad that as the text tells us, they wake Jesus up frantically and they say, Jesus, Jesus, we're perishing, we're gonna die. As Matthew and Mark's gospel says, they say, Jesus, don't you care? We're about to actually die right now. And what does Jesus do while they're frantically losing their heads? Jesus wakes up and tells the wind and the waves, quiet, be still. Now, I want you to imagine you're on the boat. You've been with this man named Jesus. He's called you. You've seen storms before. And this guy just told the winds to cease and they stopped. As the text tells us, the disciples start whispering to one another Who is this? Who is this that he tells the wind, stop? And it does. Who is this that tells the raging seas, be still? And what we see is that the disciples are caught in suspense. And for over 50 verses, we're waiting. Luke wants us to ask the question, who is this? Who who is this? And and it's not till 51 verses later that we actually get the answer to this question where Jesus asked the disciples, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do they say that I am? And Disciples look around and they say, um, well, some say you're John the Baptist. They say, you're you're John the Baptist. And then others say, no, no, you're you're Elijah. And then another said, no, no, you're one of the prophets that have risen. So they're thinking, okay, we're gonna go through some of the theological categories that we have. And then what does Peter say? Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Now to us, in our 21st century context, we go, Okay, he just said he's the Christ of God. Why is that so big? You don't, you don't feel the anticipation of this question because since 2 Samuel 7, 14, God has promised his people that there is coming a day when he is going to set a king upon his throne and it, this Messiah, this Christ is going to be the one that's gonna set all things right. And so what we see in, in texts such as Psalm 2 or Psalm 110 talking about what the Messiah is going to Going to do, or Psalm 89 19, or Isaiah 9 6 that says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. God's people have been waiting and waiting and waiting. When is this Messiah going to come? Even in Genesis 5, when Noah is named, do you know what is said of Noah? His father says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Even as far back as Genesis 5, we're waiting and we're waiting. Who is going to be the one that's going to undo the curses? Maybe it's Moses, and, and then it turns out it's not Moses. Maybe it's David, and then it turns out not to be David. Uh, maybe it's Saul. It's not Saul. Maybe it's the prophets. Oh wait, God's people killed the prophets. Maybe. And we're waiting, and we're waiting. And then God's people get taken into exile. And all of the Old Testament, we're waiting. When is God going to actually do the things he said he's going to do? And then all of a sudden, Peter fast forward century after century after century. Jesus says, who do you say I am? The disciples don't get it. And then all of a sudden, Peter says, you're the guy. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that's gonna set everything right. And oh, brothers and sisters, don't we all find ourselves in a day and age with politicians over-promising things that they know in their hearts they could never do? With companies promising benefits of things they can do. Isn't it so encouraging this morning that when God appoints a promise and says he's going to deliver, he never over-promises. He never tries his best and says, oh, we'll see how this thing goes. No, with the coming and revelation that the disciples now learn, this is the one we've been waiting for. Now we see this is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to save us from our sins. So what was the first lesson the disciples needed to learn? They needed to learn, this is no man. Men cannot speak to waves and say, be still. This is no ordinary person. This is the God, man, Christ. And so now we have the Messiah. And this now moves us to our second point, which is what? Everyone's invited. So now let's sum up. What do we know? We know that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that all of the Old Testament was building in anticipation that he would come. So now the Messiah is here. Now he's going to go set everything right. Now he is going to go and spread the gospel that all people can be forgiven. And this is a good day, is it not? And yet there's a problem. There's a problem because the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, the the religious elite, they not only despise Jesus and his message, but they despise who it is that Jesus talks to. All throughout the book of Luke, we see what is Jesus doing? He's talking to people that the Pharisees would dare not. And I had, to, I had to really, just in trying to be ready, I had to think, what was the heart posture of the Pharisees towards sinners of the day? And has not the famous theologian and biblical scholar, Dr. Seuss, told us the heart of the Pharisees? Listen to Dr. Seuss as he, as he shows us the heart of the Pharisees towards sinners. Sinners, you're a mean one. Sinners, you really are a heel. Sinners, you're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel. Sinners, I would not touch you with a 39 and one half foot pole. Sinners, you really are a vile one. The Pharisees cannot stand the fact that Jesus would talk to sinners like this. Don't we see this when Matthew was called? When Matthew is called, what do the Pharisees say? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Luke 7, 39, when a sinful woman is forgiven, what does the Pharisee say in his heart? If this man were actually a prophet, then he would have known what type of woman he's sitting with right now. He would have known what type of woman he's touching right now because she is a sinner. She is a prostitute. The fact that Jesus would even bear give her the time of day, it makes the Pharisees sick. And we see in Jesus's revelation that everyone is invited to come and have their sins forgiven. We see Jesus going out to the children, to the tax collectors, to the disabled, to the prostitutes, to the Samaritans, to the poor, to the blind beggars. Have you ever wondered why in the most, one of the most beloved chapters in the book of Luke, Luke 15 about the prodigal son, have you ever wondered why Jesus uses three different parables when he talks to the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees? I think it's because he knew that the sinners were around and were so beaten down by the religious elite of the day that the that the sinners they, they say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna come hear this Jesus. And and after Jesus finishes Luke 15, I think perhaps Jesus knows the sinners are thinking something like this. Okay, I heard Jesus talk about there there being a lost sheep and, and he, he goes after that one and then I heard Jesus talk about there's a coin and and what the woman does to search and seek and then I heard Jesus talk about this prodigal son maybe just maybe Jesus will forgive somebody like me man because the Pharisees when I when I try to go into temple they they won't accept me or now I'm a prostitute I, I just I I I know what the law says and I think Jesus speaks three parables in Luke 15 because he's trying to draw the sinners in to know that he does not tolerate them, but he welcomes them. He does what Luke 19 10 says when he says, for the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus is really, he really wants to get down into the hearts of his disciples that he doesn't want them to be like the Pharisees of the day because Jesus will say, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You know all of the Old Testament, you know all of what I've written and the very people that I came to seek and save, you shut the door on their faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So Jesus is saying it will not be that way with my disciples. My disciples will be known that we go to the worst of the worst. We go to the desolate and we preach good news. If you repent, Jesus holds open his arms. Jesus isn't playing games with this message. He is the long awaited Messiah telling his people, I've come for you. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, perhaps for some of us who have become so used to grace. I wonder if you can think of the time when your heart has strayed, when God has convicted you, when God out of his sheer grace has has wooed you back to his heart. And how amazing is it that we, in in a day and age where people are in the Twitter sphere, looking up tweets from 15 years ago, trying to cancel everyone, that here we have a God who says, yeah, I know what you tweeted. I know what you posted. I know what you did last night. And says, but if you will just turn. Jesus' message is showing them that here's a man who knows all that they've ever done as a Samaritan woman. And what does she say? Come meet a man. Come meet a man who told me all I've ever done because he's gracious. So what did the disciples need to learn? Everyone's invited. Everyone. Broken, smart ignorant everyone is invited and this leads us to our third and final lesson what was the last lesson so now we know the the messiah the coming king the one that we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for is now here and what is his message that if you turn you can be forgiven and now now that we know that everyone's invited we turn to our third point and third lesson which is true greatness true greatness i want you to imagine for a second that you apply for a job okay and you've been doing some job postings and you've been looking at the website and you say, man, Amazon looks pretty good. It looks like they're paying pretty good wages. So what do you do? So, so this person decides to apply and they go in and the interview lasts about maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And the person leaves and then the hiring manager comes out and says, John, I gotta tell you, that was the weirdest interview I've ever done. He says, why? Tell me, he says, this woman came in, and she interviewed for her two sons, saying that they would be great for COO and CFO position at Amazon. <laughs> now, now, now that's, that's weird. Mama says, you got to meet my boys. She says, you, you, I'm telling you, I've seen Amazon, and I've seen, but you, you got to get to know James and John, because my boys, I'm just telling you they are good. And as ridiculous as this sounds, this is the context of Luke 22, 24 through 30. When James and John's mother goes up and says, I got to tell you, Jesus, I got a request. And Jesus says, what is it? She says, I got my boys, James and John. And I want you to put James on the left hand. And I want you to put John on the right hand and let my boys be with you in glory. What did James and John do? They say, listen to mama, Put, put us up there. They're, they're agreeing, they're saying, Jesus, that would be a good place. And what did the disciples do? They hear wind of this and they go, oh, you think you're going to be on the left and right side? No, 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 I'm going to be. And you can imagine Peter saying, no, I'm going to be on the right. And what happens? They get in a commotion and they argue about who is the greatest? Who's the greatest? And what are, what are the disciples arguing about? And what is it? They want to be Great. They want to be seen as wise and great and powerful. They want all men to look at them and say, look how good I am. Look how powerful I am. And we see that this morning that there are those of us in this room right now that say, man, I want to be great. I want to be told how good I am, how nice I look, how attractive I am, how how good I smell, how smart I am, that we are just like the disciples saying, if you could only Google me. And what we see is that part of our hearts is we want to be told how greater we are than one another in competition. Yeah, Sally's great, but have you seen me? We are in competition to outdo one another if I have any soccer fans in here, two of the greatest soccer players right now that we're in debate right now is Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Splits household if you're a soccer fan. And Cristiano Ronaldo said this in a tweet. He said, God sent me on earth to show people how to play soccer. He said, that's why God has created me. He's created his physique and everything, those legs to run and to do that. He says, God created me to show people how to play soccer now. What's Messi going to say? Messi sees the tweet, perhaps he's with his teammates, and Messi responds quickly and said, I never sent anybody. (laughs) Messi's saying, I'm God of soccer. And I tell you, brother, I didn't create you for that. And so what do we see even in our superstars? But a willingness and a desire, look at how great I am. And we see Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I got to redefine for you what true greatness is. He's saying, because the Pharisees, they love walking in synagogue in here and hearing, oh, rabbi, and they say, yes, yes, yes. They love for people to look at them and to say, hey, I have a theological question for you. Let me solve it. And the rabbi says, yes, 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 speak. To... Jesus saying, it's not going to be like that with you. Jesus says, I don't want you to be like the rulers of the Gentiles who lord their authority over. Jesus says, I want you to become like the, like the youngest. And as Leon Morris shows in his commentary, to be the lowest, meant you, to be the youngest, Jesus says, I want you to become like the youngest and lowest. Jesus says, I want you to become a servant. Jesus hears the commotion hears the mother's request, sees the argument and leans in and tells his disciples, I want you to become what nobody in the first century wanted to become and that's a servant. While everyone's walking around and how great they are, while the Pharisees are so great in saying, I know Deuteronomy 32, I know Deuteronomy 19 verse seven, I know Exodus, while they're playing word games, Jesus is saying, if you actually wanna be great, Why don't you become a servant? And oh, what humbling words, church. Because for some of us right now, our main goal in life is to be known as how great we are. And Jesus says, no, we have to become like servants. Imagine how successful do you think the early church would have been if the disciples would have gone out to all of the towns, into Judea and Jerusalem and all the cities, and said, "Jesus, the Messiah, has come. Come and have your sins forgiven, and I'm going to manipulate you." How great! Wait, but we've seen that before. That's what the Pharisees do. That's what the scribes do. We've seen that message. We've bought the shirt. We have the hat. We have the like. We know how that thing goes. And yet, the only thing the Bible commands us to outdo one another in, in fact, the thing that the Bible wants you to be vicious at is outdoing one another in the way you honor. It says we are to outdo one another in honoring. And what better way, church, for us to outdo one another than the way we serve, that we serve one another while people are looking great, that we are secretly, with no tweets, with no Facebook posts, with no one honoring us, that we are secretly almost living, as Jesus told us, to do things in secret, to not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Jesus is redefining for us what true greatness actually is. So we now know who's the Messiah. We know everyone's invited, and now we know what true greatness is, and now we turn to what their message was. We now know at Luke 22, again, if we pick up right where we are, Jesus is literally moments from going to the cross. And and the disciples, this is where we have to lean a little bit on John's gospel. It's now for the very first time starting to hit the disciples that Jesus of Nazareth is going to go to a cross. He says in John 14, don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. And why? This isn't just their Lord. This is their friend. This, this is their guy. This is the one that they've walked with day in and day out. We all know what it's like to say goodbye to a friend and say, I'll, I'll see you next week. Or man, that, that was so good. I can't wait to see you. You know, tomorrow we'll do this. But, but, but that's not really what's going on in John 14 or, or in Luke 22. In fact, actually what's going on is the disciples are understanding that their friend is going to die. And if you've ever had to bury a loved one or or bury a spouse, you know what it is like in those last moments when you are saying goodbye, saying, there's not going to be a tomorrow. What we have right here, this is all I have, and the disciples are actually lamenting, our friend is going to die. In Luke 9 9 through 19, as soon as Peter identifies who the Messiah is, if you follow a map, you'll see that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem where he has prophesied, that is where I'm going to die. And as soon as Peter says that you are Lord, notice what Jesus says, as soon as his name is mentioned that he is the Christ, Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Christ. But to know me as Messiah is, you must know me also with my work. Jesus never got it twisted. He knew who he was and he knew what he was going to do. And now the disciples are getting ready to say bye to their friend. Luke 22:37 says, "Where I tell you that Scripture must be fulfilled in me, that he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment." Jesus identifies himself not just as a servant, but as Isaiah 53 will tell us, He is identifying himself. He is the suffering servant. He is the one that Isaiah talks about that is going to be wounded for his people's transgressions. And now we know in Luke 22 and now in John 14, that Jesus is getting ready. Jesus is about to be betrayed by the one that our text says became a traitor. Peter is about to deny him and his disciples will scatter. And yet, brothers and sisters, how good is it that even though the disciples abandon him, that Jesus comes back after his death and resurrection and now he gives us the message. Luke 24, through 49 says this, after Jesus' resurrection. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is their message that the long awaited Messiah is now inviting everyone to know that he, the suffering servant, has died and that all can be forgiven. Jesus not only taught who he was or this grand invitation or or what true greatness was, he literally embodied it on the cross. And this is the message. The suffering servant invites all people to come and be forgiven. And I wonder for some of us today, if you are here and you would say that you are not a believer, perhaps you would consider the words of Alan Stone in a song when he says, you can finish with your searching. I'm waiting to be found. He says, I'm waiting. This is the Messiah, is it not? waiting to be found, waiting to be embraced by sinners, waiting that you, if you are an unbeliever, would finally realize that this message of reconciliation that the Lord God sent his son to deal with your sins. Oh, if this is you today, I ask that you would actually consider the news that Jesus has come. And I wonder for some of us here who who are believers, Think of our unbelieving relatives or our coworkers. Do they not need to know this message? Either Jesus came to sell, save us from hell or he did not. This is literally life-changing news. Brothers and sisters, we must do what the early disciples did and spread this message. We want to be known as a church that continually tells people, about their sin, yes, but also of the goodness of their Savior who went to the cross for them. And oh brothers and sisters, how easy it is to let this amazing news that somebody has gone in your place and died. How we must fight for this message to stay afresh in our hearts, do we not? That Jesus' death and resurrection would not just become just another headline, but that the cross would actually become something that encourages us. Because as you see in all of the epistles, and as you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, as you look at Galatians, as you look at the pastoral epistles, when the church becomes bored with the gospel, sin becomes havoc, When the Galatian church decides that the gospel, we can tamper with it, and it's perhaps not the amazing news, what do we see happen? And so, oh, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, think about when the grace of the Lord first came into your hearts, when you realized, man, I'm a sinner, and Jesus has saved me. It makes me think of, I love at the end of Ice Age, when the woolly mammoth, when he saves Diego and Sid the sloth. And Sid goes up to Diego and he says, you know, I've never really had a friend who would risk his life for me. And Diego says, yeah, man, I know me either. I mean, man, what, what he did for us. And brothers and sisters, the message of these 12 ordinary men is you do not have somebody who's risked his life for you. You have somebody who's actually given his life for you. This is the message that we must Proclaim. Are you a simple, ordinary man or woman, uneducated? This message of the cross of Jesus is not only to be spread to all people. Our very own hearts need to be reminded day after day after day. Jesus keeps his promises. He invites sinners like me. All need to know that what my sin deserved is done. Oh, brothers and sisters, remember this news and proclaim it all your days. Let us pray. Father God, as we get ready to go to the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would be able to be reminded of the sweet mercy of your death and resurrection. Father, help this news to not become dull, but Lord, challenge our hearts to look at it again and again and again, that this, the long-awaited Messiah, has come and he has died to save us, Lord. Oh God, thank you for your mercies. In your name we pray, amen.